Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everyone here today. I pray you had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, we did. We spent it with the Sluters. We had a great time, and uh, it's a lot of fun and just a, just a good day. Even got some Christmas shopping done. Uh, didn't face the mad crowds too much, but we still got some done. Anyway, we're in Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to finish the chapter beginning in verse 15. Uh, next week I'm going to begin some, a series of Advent sermons, Christmas sermons. I decided I didn't really want to deal with the hypocrites of chapter 23 in the Christmas season. So, uh, so we're going to move to some Christmas-themed messages for a few weeks. And I'll get back to the hypocrites in January, so anyway. Uh, so anyway, we're in Matthew chapter 22 and beginning in verse 15. And the title of the message is... Avoiding traps, avoiding traps. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection, and they ask him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven whose wife will she be, for they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, 
nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the proclamation of his word. When I was about 13 years old, Andy, Woody, Frankie, and I were hanging out one day. Now, these were my best friends in uh, grade school and early middle school. Uh, And we hung out together all the time. In the fifth grade, uh, Andy, Frankie, and I uh, started a club, and we modestly called this club the Great Three. We made a poster for ourselves, uh, the old peace sign, you know, that, uh, you know, had the, had the symbol and the three legs, and we wrote our names, each of us wrote our names on that sign, and we wrote the great three on the top. And so uh, we hung out together. We watched Batman together, not, you know, the old Batman, you know, the ones with the, with the boom cuff, you know, all that stuff. And uh, we rode our banana bikes. You remember banana bikes? We rode our banana bikes a million miles over that part of the city. Now, my friends and I, along with a friend, Woody, was hanging out. And uh, they told me they'd been doing something. But they wouldn't tell me what they were doing unless I agreed to do it before they told me. Well... I was no dummy even then, and uh, and I saw a trap coming, and I said, "No way, I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm not gonna tell you that." So they assured me it was nothing criminal, it was nothing dangerous. I still had my doubts. I said, "It's not that bad," uh, but they wouldn't tell me what it was. They said it wasn't harmful. So finally, with all their assurances, I said, "Okay, if what you tell me is true, I'll do it." And then they told me they had all been smoking cigarettes. Well, I immediately told them, no way was I going to smoke a cigarette. I said, you guys didn't tell me the truth. Now, during that time in my life, I was a poster boy for the Smoking Causes Cancer campaign. And I bugged anyone I knew to stop smoking, whatever kind of smoking they did. I was a nut about it. My dad would occasionally smoke a pipe or a cigar. It wasn't habitual. He'd just do it every once in a while. But I considered it my calling to make his life completely miserable until he gave up that disgusting habit. And I did. I did. He finally gave it up. You know, what, just what everyone needs, a 13-year-old boy bugging their parents about something like that. You know, just what you want, right? When my friends tried to trap me into smoking a cigarette, they sprung that trap on the wrong person. Now in Matthew 22, we see the enemies of Jesus are desperate to stop him and get him in trouble. They, they, were, they sought, his enemies sought to trap him with his words. They wanted to trap him with the crowd that the crowds might turn against him. They wanted to trap him with the Roman government. They were hoping that Jesus would say something that would offend the uh, oppressive Roman government and they would arrest him. And they, and they thought that tr- they wanted to trap Jesus with his teaching about uh, eternity or the law of God or the future life. Jesus was never ensnared by their traps. He was never caught in their traps. He was always able to handle whatever came his way. And from this passage of scripture, we can see this timeless truth that Jesus never fails, but whoever seeks Jesus' downfall will ultimately fail and be destroyed. Jesus never fails, but whoever seeks his downfall will ultimately fail and be destroyed. 
Now, throughout history, there have always been those who sought to dishonor Jesus and bring shame upon him. But that's not going to happen. Those who try to shame Jesus are going to wind up in the dustbin of history. Because Jesus is going to reign forever as King of kings and Lord of lords. But for us as his followers, traps are still set. And they seek to cause us to do or say something foolish that will bring shame upon the name of Jesus. And so we want to look at these traps this morning and how to avoid them from Jesus' example to us. The first of all trap we see is the God versus government trap. Now Jesus' enemies had been shamed. You remember from chapter from the first part of the chapter in chapter 21, they'd been shamed. Jesus told three parables against them. They'd been shown to be uh, the son who promised they would obey. These religious leaders promised they would obey, but they never obeyed. They had shown to be the abusive tenant uh, who even, would even kill the master's son. And then they'd been shown to be invitees to the wedding who stubbornly refused to come. Uh, Jesus had indicted them, and they were humiliated. Now they plotted together to try to trap Jesus. The Pharisees and the Rhodians came to Jesus with the question they thought would surely trap him. Now normally these two groups would have nothing to do with each other. They they, They didn't agree with each other. They wouldn't cooperate about anything. But today they had a common enemy in Jesus. A common enemy in Jesus. Um... And so they came to him uh, to, try to, to try to trap him. The, the Pharisees, uh, basically, they didn't want Roman rule at all. And they, they did their best to, uh, to resist it. The Herodians here, they were considered traitors because they accepted positions of power in Roman rule. And so these two groups with opposite views came to Jesus and they approached Jesus. How did they approach him? They approached him with flattery. Flattery. They said, teacher, we know you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinions for you are not swayed by appearances. They approached him and they flattered him. Now what's flattery? Flattery is not someone paying you a genuine compliment to encourage you. Of all people, you and I as believers should should be willing to uh, give people encouragement to compliment them when they do something well. Flattery, however, is when you say nice things to people to try to get them to let their guard down so you can get something out of them. They were trying to get Jesus to let his guard down so they could get something from him, so they could confuse him, so they could trap him. Jesus was not fooled by the flattery, but oftentimes we can be. We can be buttered up. We can let our guard down when people say nice things to us or about us. Then then they sprung the trap. They said, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Both the Pharisees and the Rhodians are present. And they were on opposite sides of the issue, right? Jesus could not evade an answer. Uh, the Pharisees thought you shouldn't pay taxes, basically. The Herodians supported Herod and the Romans and thought you should pay the taxes. And so they were trying to put Jesus between a rock and a hard place. They felt that whatever Jesus answered, he would be in trouble. If he answered that they should pay the tax, a lot of the Israelites 
in the crowd would disagree because the Romans were oppressive rulers. Jesus would lose favor with them. If Jesus said not to pay the tax, then the Romans would consider him a revolutionary and arrest him. Jesus saw through their flattery. He saw their malicious intent. He saw their trap. They could care less about his answer. They were only hypocrites who were trying to test him, to trap him. And he said that to them. He said, you hypocrites, show me a coin. And so they brought him a coin. They brought him a denarius. And on the denarius was, uh, was an image. And Jesus said, whose image is on this coin? And they said, Caesar's image. Then Jesus gave the answer, probably one of the most famous things. Probably a lot of people that know anything about the gospel know what Jesus said. Jesus said, give to Caesar, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God. Render or give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give back to God what belongs to God. Jesus said, Caesar's image is on this coin and you should give it back. Literally, you should give it back. What, what belongs to Caesar? Caesar's picture's on it. Give that back to Caesar. But then, as, as he used this, uh, this term of the image being on the coin, he reminds us that you and I, as human beings, all of us are made in the image of God. Every person that you see, you see reflected in them the image of God. It's a marred image because of sin, but we are created in the image of God. And so as we give back to Caesar what bears his image, we should also give back to God what bears his image, which is our lives, ourselves. Give to God what belongs to God. You see, Jesus was telling them something we should understand. The government provides certain services, and to provide these services, they tax citizens. And Jesus said, "You, (coughs) you should pay these taxes. We should always give the government what belongs to the government now you're not going to like everything the government does with the tax money that you have to give them Uh, but even if you don't you should still pay your taxes and because the government provides you a lot of things that you do like all of us here probably drove cars over roads that are paid for by tax money right and so we are to give to to Caesar, to the government, what belongs to the government are taxes, and we're to give to God what belongs to God. Whatever we should give to the government, whether it's taxes or respect or honor, we should give that to the government. What belongs to God, we should give to God. Paul reinforced this teaching in Romans 13. He said, one must be in subjection to government and its leaders, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, Attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. (coughs) Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. So Paul says give to the government what you should give to them. Peter says this also. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it's to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. We are to give to the government what belongs to the government and to God what belongs to God. We're not to give to the government what belongs to God, though, and and we need to remember that. Uh, We're to give the government what belongs to them and to God what belongs to him. Uh, You remember in the book of Acts, 
the apostles were commanded not to preach Jesus' name by those in authority, what did they say? We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. Um, we, many would argue that, that this, this teaching of Jesus in Matthew uh, 22 is the, is the basis of what we would call the separation of church and state in our Constitution. The church shouldn't do what the state uh, should do, and the state shouldn't do what the church should do. The state should never compel belief, or it should never discourage belief. Uh, the state shouldn't give its money to support churches and, and our activities to take the gospel around the world. <coughs> and the church should not receive tax money to carry out its mission. You know, we should not expect the, the state to help us carry out the, the, the task of evangelizing the world. Uh, we are to take the gospel to the world, and we should do that, and we should fund that. We owe the government certain things, and we should give those to the government. We do not owe ultimate allegiance to the government, to our country. We should never confess the government is supreme. <coughs> you know, the early Christians were persecuted because they refused to say that Caesar was Lord. And they would only confess Jesus is Lord. Jesus is supreme. You see, we should never ultimate, owe ultimate allegiance to the government or to our country. We should owe that ultimate allegiance to Jesus, that He is supreme. We should understand government, government does not determine right or wrong. God determines right or wrong. And the government must not seek to get God's people to confess right is wrong or wrong is right. And so we are to give to the government what belongs to the government. We're to give to God what belongs to God. Jesus didn't fall in the God versus government trap. And neither should you and I. We should be good citizens of our country. It is a democracy. We should vote. We should pay our taxes. We should try to influence government to do things that are good for, uh, for, for the nation. Um, we should, we should, uh, we should do all these things, but ultimately our citizenship is in heaven. Our governments, every government in the world is one day going to pass away. And ultimately our allegiance must be to God alone. So we're to give to the government what we should and give to God the supreme allegiance and what we should only give to God. That's the first trap that we are to avoid. The second trap is this life Versus the next life trap. Now Jesus didn't fall into the first trap. So the second trap was sprung. The Sadducees come to Jesus. And the Sadducees were leaders in in Israel. They they held a lot of powerful offices. I think the chief priest uh, (coughs) and his family. Those who kind of uh, governed the temple were mostly Sadducees. Sadducees. Now, what do we know about the Sadducees? Well, um, they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament as Scripture. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They didn't accept any of the prophecies, any of the Psalms as Scripture. They also did not believe in death and life after death or angels or heaven. They thought this life was all there was. You know, I always think of Sadducees. What, what more sad you see, think, and you believe than this life is all there is? Anyway, 
has nothing that really has no good theological or interpretational bias. It's just a thought. But anyway. And so they came to him. These Sadducees came to him. And they brought, I think, their best argument against resurrection to Jesus. Uh, they, they brought this argument because they wanted to, to, to show, to make Jesus look foolish. And anyone look foolish who would believe in life after death. And so they called Jesus teacher. And they said, teacher, a man uh, married a woman. And he died. And, and the two of them never had any children. And then there was a law in Israel that if, if a man died, he had unmarried brothers. The unmarried brothers were to marry his wife to raise up offspring uh, for, for him. And so, uh, so the man died. He had no children. And so his unmarried brother married uh, the widow. And then the, the second brother died and they had no children. Well, this happened seven times. Seven times the woman was married uh, there, her, husband, uh, her husband died and then the brother would marry her. And the Sadducees said there was such a family that the first brother died without children. And so the second brother married her. And then up to the seven, all seven brothers married her. And they all died. They never had, she never had any children. And finally the woman herself died. <coughs> and so they said to Jesus, this was their best argument in the resurrection, therefore, the seven, whose wife shall she be? For they all had her. You see, the Sadducees thought this proved there could be no resurrection. There could be no life after death. Well, what did Jesus say as they tried to trap him with this question? Jesus, basically, he said, you are wrong. You know, I like, you know, very seldom in the scripture do we hear Jesus just saying flat out to people, you're wrong. Oftentimes he'll ask a question and help them to see they're wrong. But here he says, you are wrong. You are wrong. He says, you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And then Jesus began to instruct them about the next life. He said, in that resurrection, you don't get married. Marriage is not a part of the next life. It's a part of this life, but it's not a part of the next life. You see, the Sadducees thought of, of uh, that eternal life was just, was just an extension of this life, was exactly like this life is. And Jesus said, that's not the way it is. In eternity, it's, it's not going to be structured like the life we have down here. In eternity, you don't die. And if you don't die, you don't need to procreate and have children. So, you, you know, there's, there, children aren't born in the next life. Uh, and in the next life, in this life, marriage provides the deepest kind of intimacy uh, that, we, that we can find. But in the next life, we're, we're not going to need marriage or sexual relations to provide that kind of intimacy. Jesus said, we'll be like the angels in heaven that do not marry. This is a kind of a dig on the Sadducees because they didn't even believe in angels. Uh, so the Sadducees thought that eternal life was just an extension of this life. And Jesus said, no, it's not like that in the next life. There's not going to be marriage. There's going to be intimacy that's so real that we won't need marriage. It's, it's going to be different. Um... It's not going to be like the experiences you have today. Um, 
the Sadducees also did not believe God had the power to raise the dead. They didn't believe God had the power to raise the dead. Uh, They didn't believe that anything could happen except what happened naturally. Kind of like the secularists of our day, some people of our day who says, nothing can happen except what we can uh, explain by science, uh, explain through natural processes. Uh, And they think that life is only what they experience right now and nothing more. And they cannot accept a God whose work goes beyond human experiences. You know, if that is where you're at, if, if you know, and, and that's not a bad place to be if that's where you're at, you know, that you don't understand how life can be any different and how God could do these things like raising the dead. I have a question for you. If God is God, if there is a God, and if God is God, could he not determine to do whatever he wants to do? If, if God is God, can he not determine to do whatever he He wants to do. You see, the believer knows this. The believer knows that God has the power to raise the dead. And he can do anything because we serve a God who raises the dead. Then Jesus goes on to their misunderstanding of Scripture. The Sadducees only accept the Pentateuch, the first five books. And so that's where Jesus zeroes in when he teaches them about life after death. He goes to the book of Exodus, which they do accept. And Jesus says this, As for the resurrection of the dead, (coughs) have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus takes them to Exodus and to the place where God spoke out of the burning bush to Moses. And God did not say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. But God said, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob because he is the God of the living and not the dead. And so out of the book of Exodus, out of the Pentateuch itself, he proves to these Sadducees that there is life after death. You see, don't fall into the... This life versus the next life trap. Oftentimes Christians are said to be people who are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. But if if you know what the scripture says, you you know you have to be concerned with this life and the next life. You see, eternal life doesn't start when we die. Eternal life starts the moment a person believes in Jesus. And it lasts forever. This life prepares for the next life. This life explains. uh, The next life explains this life. There are some things that will never be right in this life, but they will be in the next. Some pains will never be completely comforted in this life, but they will be in the next. In this life, there's evil There is death, there is suffering, there is injustice, but not in the next. In this life, the bad guys often win. And they get away with it. We all know that's true. We've seen it happen. But that's not not what's going to happen in the next. In the next life, God will right every wrong that happens. He will set everything right. Justice is often thwarted in this life. But God, it will not be thwarted in eternity. It will not be thwarted in eternity. 
You see, the next life's not going to be exactly like this life. For those who believe, it's going to be better. It's going to be better. God's best is yet to come for all who believe. And so don't fall into a this life versus the next life trap. There's another trap that Christians often fall in, and that is the love God versus love people trap. The love God versus the love people trap. Now, one of the leaders of the Pharisees, an expert in the law, asked Jesus a question. He was among those testing Jesus, but this was less a testing question than than the first two. It was less a trap. And he said to Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment? What is the most important commandment? Well, when Jesus answered, he answered in such a way, not so much as to rate the commandments, and they had a, the Pharisees and Pharisees had a list of, they had like 600 and something commandments. And, you know, we think of the Ten Commandments. But Jesus is not like saying, this is number one, and then rate them for like a, a top ten list. He answered in such a way that revealed that all the commandments are summed up into principles in the two great commandments the first and greatest commandment jesus said was to love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind this commandment is the is the most important thing that you and i can do in life to love god supremely with all our heart with all our soul with all our mind it sums up the first of the t- the first four of the Ten Commandments. The commandment to not have other gods before God, to not make physical representations or idols, uh, to not of God, to not use the name of the Lord in an empty way in vain, and to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The most important thing we can do in life is to love God above everything and everyone else. And then Jesus said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These commands, this, this uh, second command sums up the last six uh, commandments. The last six commandments are honor your father and mother, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie about your neighbor, don't covet what belongs to your neighbor. And so the second commandment sums up how we deal with each other. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. If you love your neighbor, you're going to seek what's best for your neighbor, aren't you? If you love your neighbor, you're not going to hurt them by doing things that are harmful to them. Loving God and loving your neighbor are the two great principles, and they sum up all the commandments. If you love God supremely and love others as you love yourself, you're not, you're, you will, by default, not break the commandments. Now, these are not in conflict, but in harmony. These two principles, to love God and to love people, are not in conflict but in harmony. If you love God, you love your neighbor. If you love God, you're not going to harm your neighbor. If you love God, you're going to help your neighbor. If you say you love God but don't do these things, you don't love God like you should. The people trying to trap Jesus thought they loved God. They really did. They thought that they loved God. But they just loved themselves and their positions of power. They didn't care anything about helping hurting people. They didn't care that their religious structures made it hard for people to follow God, to love God and others. And if you, and if you love God, you have to love people. If you love God, you're not going to harm people. You're not going to destroy people. 1 John 4 makes this crystal clear in verses 20 and 21. 
If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. He does not love his brother whom he, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Don't fall into the trap of love God versus love people. Finally, there's one final trap. And this trap was kind of set by Jesus himself. These leaders fall into Jesus' trap. The incomplete understanding of Jesus, of Messiah, who he is. Now, they tried to think of another trap, but they, while they were gathering, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? <coughs> Whose son is he? Well, they answered, he's the son of David, and that was a good answer. The Messiah, the Savior, the Christ, would be a descendant of David. God has promised David that his descendants would reign forever. And so the Christ would be a descendant of David. They got this right. But then Jesus takes them to Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 is the most quoted prophecy of the Messiah in the New Testament. Uh, It's the most quoted prophecy of the Messiah in the New Testament. If you read the book of Acts and the sermons of the apostles, it's quoted again and again and again. I think I read that it was quoted 27 times in the New Testament. And it was a messianic psalm, a psalm speaking of the Messiah of Israel. It was written by David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit inspired him, David wrote. That's the way all scripture is. All scripture has human uh, people who write it and God works through their personality. But God is directing it, is breathing it uh, so that we get... We get what we need. Uh, When we talk about Paul, if Paul wrote something, or if Peter, or Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Holy Spirit, they wrote, they had had their own personalities. It's not dictation, but somehow the Holy Spirit breathes through them and gives us the scripture that we need, uh, the perfect scripture that we can trust. All scripture is God-breathed, the scripture says. And so David was the human instrument that wrote Psalm 110. And Jesus quoted Psalm 110 and said, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So Jesus posed the question, the riddle to them. How could the Messiah be a descendant of David and the Lord of David? You see, the leaders had gotten it partially right. The Messiah was a descendant of David, but that was only partial truth because the Messiah was more than the son of David. The Messiah was also the very son of God. He was fully God and fully man. What does the scripture teach us about Jesus? He was born of a virgin, did not have a human father. He had a unique, one-of-a-kind birth. Without a human father. The scripture teaches that. That's a very important thing scripture teaches. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. God was his father. And people still say today. And I can understand it. That's impossible. It can't happen. How can a virgin have a baby? Remember what I asked you before? If God is God. Can he not do whatever he determines to do? You see we believe in the virgin birth of Christ because we believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. We believe there's evidence that proved to a, to a person who would examine that evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. We have those little books 
uh, called The Case from the Resurrection. We'll give to anybody who would like it. And it talks about the reasons, the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the evidence that we believe shows that Jesus rose from the dead. And so if Jesus rose from the dead, and we believe that, can we not believe that God would enable a virgin to conceive? This only happened once, it's never going to happen again. If God can raise the dead, physically and bodily, never to die again, he could also cause a virgin to conceive. Now, the leaders did not understand Messiah as fully God and fully man. They just saw him as a human deliverer. But the scripture teaches that Jesus is fully God and fully man. In fact, Paul restates this in Romans 1. And he says this, uh, which he beforehand... uh, through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, Jesus is more than a great teacher, a great moral teacher. Jesus has to be more than a martyr. He has to be even more than an earthly messiah. He is fully God and fully man. He is the one who could die for the sins of the world as the perfect sacrifice and that that sacrifice would be accepted by a holy God so that he could die in our place and we could receive his righteousness. You see, Jesus is fully God and fully man. You know, the scripture says in Philippians... Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being found in appearance, uh, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness (coughs) and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, don't fall into the trap of thinking that Jesus was just a great teacher or a great religious leader or another religious martyr. Believers today and throughout history proclaim that Jesus Christ is the resurrected Lord. He is fully God and fully man. Jesus is the hope for the world, the only way of salvation. Jesus Christ alone, after everything is said and done, He alone will be Lord. You might say, I just don't see it now, and and I can understand that. None of us saw and believed this when we first heard it. Even if we were raised in church, we didn't see and believe it if we just heard it. But I'm, I'm asking you, if what we say is true today, will you examine these claims and explore whether it's true? You see, we as believers willingly confess Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior. And we proclaim this to you. And Jesus wants this for you. But you have to examine the evidence for yourself. Jesus loves you, we believe. He came to save you and, and, and all who will believe. And if what we say is true, it it should be explored and checked out so that you, if you don't believe it, might find out for yourself. 
Don't fall into the traps. Jesus will save you if you will believe. Now, if you examine and you reject him, um, I don't I, I don't know what to tell you. But if you examine and believe, you can find life and find it in Jesus. You see, ultimately, Jesus never fails. But whoever seeks Jesus' downfall will, will ultimately fail and be destroyed. You see, we proclaim to you the Lord of life, the one who thwarted all his enemies, the one who helps us not to fall into these traps. We proclaim to you him who loves you and died for you and rose again and wants to save you. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you for your great love for all of us. Father, we pray that you would just draw each of us to yourself. Lord, if there's someone here and they've been wrestling with whether Jesus is Lord, if he is, he, he is who, who his people proclaim him to be, he is who his word proclaims him to be. If they're struggling with that, I pray that you would open their minds and help them to explore and receive this truth and believe. And Father, if there are those here, Lord, they're not, they, they have examined uh, the claims of Christ. But Lord, they've not yet said yes to you being the Lord and ruler and master of their life. I pray that by your grace, you would enable them to receive and believe you and stop living for themselves from this moment on and start living for you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.